You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Joshua chapter 1. I'll tell you where we're headed. The main point of this morning is this. God expects his people to be committed to care for each other, not just themselves. God expects his people to be committed to to care for each other, not just themselves. And if you were not with us last week, you maybe are with us normally, but you missed last week. Circumstances permitted you, prohibited you from coming. Let's look briefly. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9 is where we were. I'll summarize it for you briefly. We saw in verses 1 to 4 the guarantee of God's promise. Moses might be out of the picture. God's not. The people might have changed. The place is about to change. God has not changed. We also then saw in verses 5 and 9 and even this morning in verse 17, the encouragement of God's presence. God made a promise, and part of the promise is his very presence. He is with them in easy days and in hard days. And then thirdly, we learned last week the centrality of God's word. It's one thing for God to sort of make a promise. We would like if you were to sort of sit back in the lazy boy of Christianity and say, okay, God's made promises to us. By those promises, we can now do whatever we want, including nothing that we should, right? By no means. He calls Joshua first, and then Joshua calls the people second to have the Word of God central in their thinking, devoted in their direction, all about their allegiance. And so there is an expectation here that God's people take God's promises seriously and their responsibility equally as seriously. That's what we saw last week. But today we come into verses 10 through 18, where we learn the unity of God's people. The unity of God's people. So let's look at it together. I'll read. You follow along in your Bible. Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days, you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over, armed before your brothers, and shall help them until the Lord gives you gives rest to your brothers, as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession, and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise." And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. 
Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. As I said just a minute ago, by way of review, the unity of God's people is the main thrust of what we're going to see this morning and the point that we want to sort of stand and stare at for a while. Joshua 1 is interesting in that at the very beginning of verses 1 to 9, we've learned several lessons by comparison of all that's being covered in those first nine verses. And it seems like in verses 10 to 18, a lot of ink has been spilt to just make this one point. Why is this so much a point of emphasis? Well, you have to understand the context, and without understanding the context, it might be lost in you. So you can keep your place in Joshua, but turn to the left in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 32. Turning to the left, you'll come across Deuteronomy. Keep going, get to the book of Numbers. Numbers 32. What happens in Numbers 32 is really the connecting point here in what's going on in Joshua 1. And I don't want it to be lost on you. In Numbers chapter 32, just looking at verse 1, and then we're going to look at a few verses along the way. Look at what it says in verse 1. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jazar and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar, the priest, and to the chiefs of the congregation, and giving their names there, it says, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found, they have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Okay, stop right there. Let me just help you understand. So you've got 2 million people divided up between 12 tribes of Israel. And of those 12 tribes, all but 11 of them get land, a portion to them eventually. The, the Levites do not. And they are marching, if you will, through the wilderness, but honestly doing like lots of U-turns and roundabouts because of their disobedience. God's saying, hey, because the first generation would not believe, I'm going to let them pass away as a consequence of their disobedience and unbelief. But the second generation, meaning their kids, will get another shot at it. And so now we're dealing with the second generation, and they're having seemingly relative success as they make their way through the land, and they come up against what's going to be the part where they cross over the Jordan River into the stated promised land, and half of the people, not half of the people, two and a half of the tribes say basically to Moses, hey, uh, we kind of like it here. Can we stay here? We got a lot of cows. We got a lot of goats. We got a lot of camels. We got lots of livestock. It'd be good for us to be right here. And you're like, well, that seems reasonable. That's kind of them. Makes sense, being pragmatic. But is that really what's happening here? Well, the story continues and the plot thickens. Well, look at what it says in verse 6. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? While you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, 
For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. The Lord's anger was kindled on that day. Okay, what's happening here? What's happening is Moses is like, oh, I see where this is going. Like father, like son. You're just like the people before you. You're just like your forefathers. You're just like your parents. And what he's referring to here is what happened earlier in Numbers, chapter 12 and 13. Basically, Moses sends 12 spies, one representing every tribe, 12 spies into the promised land. They are, if you will, kind of on point. They, they go scout the land, and they come back and give a report. And Moses is like, well, are we going to do this? And people are like, well, we're going to do this. And 10 of the 12 people say, nah, we can't do it. It's, it's too difficult. These people are big, there's too much land, we're too small people, and on and on and on. Meanwhile, Joshua and Caleb are like, hello, hello, are you not understanding? God made a promise to us, if God's with us, who can be against us? We've got this. It's gonna be hard, it's gonna be costly, but we've got this. And the 10 people persuade the two million people we're not gonna go. And so that entire generation in rebellion because of their unbelief dies in the wilderness. And Moses is saying, you are becoming just like them. You're up against something difficult. And not only are you refusing to, but you're going to let them do it without you. And this sort of continues throughout the chapter here. Still in Numbers 32. Look at verse 16. They came near to him and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. Meaning they're making a promise. We're not going to give up. We're not going to stop. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. Look ahead to verse 28. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar, the priest, and to Joshua, the son of Nun, to the heads of the father's house of the tribes of the people of Israel. And Moses said to them, if the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed to battle before the Lord, will pass with you over the Jordan and the land shall be subdued before them, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. However, if they will not pass over with you, armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, what the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. We will pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan and take possession, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. By summary of what's happening in Joshua 1, is a repeating of a conversation in Numbers 32 that while the leadership maybe has changed, Moses to Joshua, the commitment should not have changed. That what they vowed to do, that they should do. Moses suspecting that the request for this land was hiding a fresh conspiracy to abort the fulfillment of God's promise. In fact, you'll see in number 32, verse 14, he even associates him with being a brood of sinful men like their forefathers were. So Moses says, we must not make that mistake again. And Joshua is basically stating the exact same thing. Like, hey, leaders might have changed, but the commitment to one another has not changed. I would be remiss if I didn't in Joshua 1 just make this passing comment in light of 
today's politically correct environment that we live in, we sometimes lose our bearings. Notice in Joshua chapter one, verse 14, it says, your wives and your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. And I do think it's interesting to note the biblical perspective as we see in history and their culture is that it's worth noting that the men were expected to participate in combat. As we've seen in Jeremiah 50, verse 37, it was shameful for a nation to allow women to fight in a war on behalf of the men. And not because the women were being less dignified or capable, but because of a man being honorable to protect, to fight, and to lose their life, others and not ask him to do so in their place. Coming back for a point now here in Joshua 1, we can see all of the unity of Israel is significant here. In Joshua 1, verses 10 through 18, Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh are supposed to be models, and they are. Look at what the response is. Verse 16, all that you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses all things, so we will obey you. And you have to understand how significant this idea of the unity of God's people is referenced throughout the entire book of Joshua. In fact, just keeping your finger in Joshua 1, notice how this theme continues. It, it happens in Joshua 3 and 4, 7 and 8. But look at chapter 10 of Joshua. Turn in Joshua 10. Look at verse 29, how commonly this is referenced because it's a major theme throughout the book of Joshua that I'll highlight now as you'll begin to see it in the coming months. Joshua, again, like I said, three and four talks about it, seven and eight talks about it. Look at Joshua 29, 10 verse 29. It says, then Joshua and all of Israel with him. Verse 31, then Joshua and all of Israel with him. Again, verse 34, then Joshua and all of Israel with him. Again, verse 36, then Joshua and all of Israel with him. Again, verse 38, Joshua and all of Israel with him with him. Later on in Joshua chapter 22, you see this again in verse 12. Joshua 22 verse 12, when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh. God wants to make sure they recognize the importance of all of them being present. Verse 13, when the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, Again, in verse 16 of chapter 22, we see this continuing to come out. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is the breadth of the faith that you have committed against the God of Israel? And this continues to be the theme. Joshua chapter 24, verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel. My friends, it's not hard here to see the connection of God's people and promise to one another in the Old Testament that they had to make, that we as well in a similar principled way make today in the New Testament as Christians with one another. The implications here are huge. The unity among God's people is no small luxury. This does not mean in the body of Christ today that we are committed to each other because we share the same ethnicity. We come from the same country. We have the same hobbies. We have the same age group. We are of the same gender. We are of the same persuasion. We're the same political ideology. That's not the means by which we make commitments to one another. We recognize the reality that we have a prerequisite if we're in the body of Christ to be faithful, not simply to the Lord, 
but faithful to the Lord in so much as we see that faithfulness demonstrated to one another. To, to prove the point, let me ask you, keeping your finger in Joshua 1, turn with me in your New Testament to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're not familiar with Ephesians or where it is in the Bible, you can simply listen as I read it to you. But Ephesians chapter 4, the context here is he's telling this church in the city of Ephesus, these Christians walking a manner worthy of the calling which they've been called, Ephesians 4 verse 1. He talks about Christ who gives gifts to his church. These gifts are listed in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But why did he give these offices to the church? Ephesians chapter 4, follow along as I read verses 12 through 16. It says, he gave them to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Until when? Until you feel like you're good with God, you and God are good? No, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we, again, the plural, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, that's spiritual immaturity, friends, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head in Christ, verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you realize the temptation for you and for me today individually as Christians is the same temptation that the Gadites, the Reubenites, and half of the Manassites had themselves, which is basically this temptation. I got what I wanted from God, so I'm good. I'm willing, not just willing, I'm wanting to stay right where I am, right here. That same temptation exists for every one of us as Christians today. I got what I wanted. Forgiveness of my sin, adoption by God, God as my heavenly father, Christ as my older brother, the spirit dwelling inside of me, the promise he'll never leave me nor forsake me, always being present with me. I'm good, I'm good. That's the same temptation going on back in Numbers 32 and the same temptation for us today. In Ephesians chapter four, Christ is said to give gift to the body, shepherds, pastors, teachers, to teach the body how to do ministry to one another for the building up of the body. And we, we don't stop until every part of it is knit together in love, until it's building itself accordingly. We speak the truth in love. We see spiritual maturity as a concern, and so we address it. We pursue it. We care about it. And so it's not a question of how are, am I doing or how are you doing. It's how are we doing. And because we know that answer is never yet finished, never yet done, we continue. 
We love, we pursue, we pray, we care, we read, we learn, we interact, we're hospitable together. Now, for those of you who are not Christians, let's have a moment together, you and I, to consider something. Can I just ask you to consider your friendships? And I don't mean to say imply you have bad friendships. I trust you have some good friendships. I hope you do. But let me ask you a question. What is the nature of your friendship? What's the foundation by which you make that commitment to one another? How do you, how did you first get brought together and how do you keep that being brought together? Some of your friendships is because you went to the same college together. Some of your friendships is because you cheer for the same sport team together. Some of your friendship is because you maybe are kind of from the same people group, you know, from the same country of birth. And outside of that little tie, there might not be much that you have. In fact, quite honestly, maybe some of you feel like you don't really have any real friends. In fact, that's a reality for many people as they feel profoundly lonely in a city of three million people. They feel all alone. What I want you to see, for those of you who are not Christians, is to recognize how God sees that and God invites the reality to not only a relationship with him, but with people who he also has a relationship with that extend themselves by commitment to him to a commitment to you for those whose faith is in Christ. Just to illustrate this point, this is important for those of you who are not Christians and for those of you who are Christians but maybe free agent Christians. You know, you've not committed to a team. You're not a part of any one local church by conscientious commitment, i.e. membership. Let me, if I can, direct your attention to the screens. I want to show you the introduction to the Grace Church Membership Covenant. I'm gonna read it, you follow along. As members of Grace Church Miami, we affirm this covenant with one another by God's grace, for our good and ultimately for God's glory. These expectations for our members do not extend beyond the responsibilities the scripture establishes for all believers. Thus, Grace Church Miami membership is a commitment before God and one another to obey the biblical principles for men and women in the church, specifically with this local congregation. Well, what is that kind of commitment that the Christians of Grace Church make to one another? Well, we'll give you a couple of bullet points as you can see it for yourself, what it says, how we commit to one another. By the help of the Holy Spirit, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice that unity in the Spirit. But we will be devoted to one another in love. We will be patiently bare with each other with humility and gentleness, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other and admonishing one another when necessary. Later on, we say, we will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. What kind of relationships do you have? I suppose, kind of truth in advertising, I should tell you if you want to commit to Grace Church, that's the kind of stuff we're asking you to commit to. You might say, you might say, but Eric, I, I have had friends before. It did not go well. Okay. I've been a part of churches before. It did not go well. Like, what happened? Well, uh, people lied to me. People were uh, dishonest. Uh, people were um, created expectations. They didn't seemingly follow through in me. Okay. And so you're saying what? 
like you're never going to commit to a church again. I mean, it's like saying I had bad food at a restaurant once at Chili's. I'm never going to eat at any restaurant again. I don't mean to throw Chili's under the bus there. So he's like, I love Chili's. I'm, I'm, go, pro Chili's. Eat there all you want. My point is this. Can you imagine the Reubenites and the Gadites? They're like, hey, um, Moses, this is going to get hard. People might hurt my feelings. He's like, oh, no, people might actually end your life. You might die keeping this promise. You might not ever see your father or your brother again. That's how costly this is. And they're like, we're in. We're all in. We made a promise to the Lord. We intend to keep it no matter what it costs us. I'm saying, let's step into that kind of maturity of our commitment to the Lord by showing that kind of commitment to each other. The significance of this is huge for us. Now, this past week, Josh Lane told me about a new TV show on Netflix called Quarterback. Uh, this is uh, sounded intriguing to me, not because I track uh, professional sports. I don't really track any sports. I find it all quite boring, and I'm probably offended half the room. I'm sorry. Um, but every now and then, I'll kind of jump into something like, oh, that's interesting. And so he told me about this reality show where it tracks three professional quarterbacks in the NFL. It's fascinating. I'm really quite enjoying it. I find it all quite intriguing. I did also hear a comedian say this week that he found it also intriguing that people will form fantasy football leagues which itself is kind of entertaining because he felt like what I feel like. He's like, wait a minute, professional football is already a fantasy league. It's a bunch of people fantasizing about what it would be like to be like those people who had athleticism, who could run that fast and do those things, who get paid that kind of money, and yet we're having a fantasy about a fantasy. It's all quite confusing to me, but I digress. When we're watching the quarterback series, one of the episodes is called House of Pain. I think it's something like that. And it was like an episode where they just talk about how much a quarterback just get pummeled, 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 pummeled all the time. Like one guy, I think, oh, he's got to have broken ribs. And I was saying to my wife, I feel like when when those quarterbacks get tackled, the offensive line, which I've had to learn these terms, that's how disconnected I am from professional the offensive line are the people trying to protect their quarterback. They apparently have failed. And their quarterback has been tackled. It's my opinion they should turn around to the quarterback and say, my bad. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like, I think on Monday morning, they had to, like, send him a care package. Like, man, I owe you. Lunch is on me today. If I had done my job, you could have maybe done your job, and we could have then maybe scored, and so I, I own that. I own that. That's, that's on me. It's my bad. But they rarely ever make comments like that. They're like, you know, that's just how that works. While these might be unrealistic expectations in football, can they be unrealistic expectations in the body of Christ? Let me ask you to consider two questions for your own reflection. Question number one, who's got your back? And question number two, who's got yours? Or whose back do you have? How does your answer illustrate your commitment to a deeper body of believers, no matter what it's going to cost you? This is significant. I apologize. Those questions are basically asking the same thing. That's what happens when you don't edit your notes. That's not on them. That's on me. What it should say is, who's got your back and whose back do you have? You can make those adjustments yourself. 
The Bible's inspired, not a preacher's notes. You need to ask yourself this question. These two points of consideration. Think of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25. Look at what it says there on the screen. This is significant for you. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we're back to the promises of God and how God is faithful. What do we do then? Well, then let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the downsides of COVID since COVID is that Christians got used to living their Christianity through online TV Christianity. And even now, as people perhaps are watching this live, I want to say if you're ever tempted to simply stay home Because you know you might have to get up and take a shower. You might have to get dressed. You're going to have to engage relationships. It's going to ask something of you. I'm saying that's good for you. And it's not only good for you, it's good for the others to whom you're going to interact with. It's you saying, I am not going to let others waver in their Christianity, and I'm going to ask others to not let me waver in my Christianity. I need to be where the people of God are, centered around the Word of God for our lives living together for the glory of God. For those of you who are not Christians, the, the point here for you is not pick better friends. It's to make the logical connection. This is what Jesus does when he changes lives. Christians have recognized the things about themselves that they in humility believe about you, which is every one of us has rebelled against a holy God. We live rightly under his wrath to be judged by him because you know why? God is what we hoped him to be. He's just. And there are consequences. But he's also merciful, and he gives his son, not as some ethical example primarily to be imitating, but as one as a substitute. He obeys where we have never perfectly obeyed. And then he dies as a substitute, being crucified on the cross, being a substitute, receiving upon him the wrath of God that otherwise we would deserve. And then he resurrects from the grave, three days later convincingly appearing to more people that are seated in this room and all those who would believe in him as the son of God and put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. He literally takes out their heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh and they now have new desires and new affections. And that's why you get a bunch of people like this in Miami sitting together and sitting and going, what is the common thread here? Jesus. And that's for you where you need to begin. Do I believe in Jesus? To be adopted by God as your father is to be introduced when you're brought home to all of your siblings that you are now part of that same family. But to be a teenager who says, I want to eat my food in my room and never come to the family table is one who at best spiritually immature does not understand what it means to be a part of the family of God. Joshua chapter 1, they said to them, we get it, we hear you, and we will obey you. 
And just so you're encouraged that we're not living in those days, look at the consequence for those who don't. Verse 18, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. You can relax. It's a culturally different issue being addressed there. But the point is still the same. There are consequences. This is why Hebrews would say what he would say. So what does it look like in the New Testament for Christians to bear for each other? I'll simply cite to you by referencing the scripture. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection, not doing one another in honor. Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. Galatians 5.13, serve one another through love. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, bear with one another in love with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Ephesians 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, a passage I already read to you this morning, stir up one another in love to love and good works. Again, verse 25 of Hebrews 10, meet together for encouragement. Do not forsake the assembly of the saints together. Stop telling yourself you don't need to go to church. James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I, I'm literally copying and pasting the Bible. What do we learn here? We learn that in order for God's people to be obedient to God and trust Him and follow Him, they have to be committed to the unity that they have with one another. That the commitment they've made to the Lord is seen by the commitment they keep with one another. We see God expects his people to be committed to care for each other, not just themselves. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.